Tēnā koutou katoa, nau mai haere mai, ko Julie Hill takaringua, e mihi ana ki te iwi kainga ki a nai tuahuriri me ona hapu. Hi, welcome to The Politics of Fiction, where we're going to be discussing whether fiction can create empathy, compassion, cross-cultural divides, affect change, even. <laughs> uh, let me introduce you to my very talented and good-looking <laughs> authors um, and, and the books that we'll be discussing today. Uh, Pip Adams' second novel, The New Animals, uh, won the Fiction Prize in uh, this year's Ockham New Zealand Book Awards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it's set in Auckland's fashion scene, or it is to begin with, anyway. Uh, who wants to go next? Rajoshi Chakraborty's novel, The Man Who Would Not See, is his fifth novel. Uh, it's about secrets, lies, and colossal misunderstandings between two uh, half-brothers who grew up in India and one has since relocated to Wellington, New Zealand. Kind of a little bit like somebody. <laughs> uh, and welcome. And Branavan Nyanalingam's novel, Sold and Downstream, also your fifth novel. You guys are neck and neck with the novels. Uh, is about a Tamil refugee named Sita who is trying to get to her overnight shift as a cleaner in Wellington from Lower Hutt in the middle of a torrential Wellington storm. Welcome, everyone. Uh, also, I have to thank your publishers, who are Penguin Random House, Victoria University Press, and Lawrence and Gibson. Um, Pip, I'm going to start with you, because you're a lady. Um, that is debatable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you have sort of two sets of characters in the new animals, uh, the, the quite young male fashion designers and then the predominantly older females who are sort of working in support of those guys as the hairdresser, the, the pattern cutter, uh, and the stylist. And um, you've said that the difference between those groups is not so much generational, but, but to do with class, and I wondered how you were trying to talk about class inequity in New Zealand through um, the characters in your novel. Yeah, thank you. For, hello. Um, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I, I worked for about 15 years as a hairdresser, and um, one of the interesting things about a lot of those service industries is that um, we were expected to present as kind of well-dressed, um, beautiful, all these sorts of things that cost a lot of money, yet we were paid a very small amount. And I think that... Um, I think that there's a wee bit of that that goes on. I think sometimes there's a cost to working, especially in low-paid jobs. And I um, was kind of interested, that was where the sort of gem started, you know, the germ of it started, like just this idea that, um, yeah, this weird game that we play where we don't like to know that our service people are being paid not very much. Um, and then, obviously, the massive inequality that's happening, the way that the wages are just being stripped out all over the world. And 
I was really interested as well. Like I started looking at a few hairdressing jobs and when I was hairdressing, we used to work on a commission basis. So we got paid almost nothing and then everything was whether we sold you know, this or that. And this kind of casualization and sort of gig economy, I was just really interested how it sort of had its roots back there. And then I guess the only other part is this idea of what floats to the surface as far as creative endeavor goes. You know, like um, it costs money to create, it costs money to write books, it costs money to make art. And um, I get really uncomfortable that maybe there are some stories, especially in New Zealand, that are not being told, simply because people are working really hard to feed their family. And um, yeah, so I guess all those ideas were kind of alive when I was thinking about the book, yeah. I mean, as well as everything else, hairdressers are sort of badly paid therapists as well. <laughs> not me. <laughs> I, I was a terrible hairdresser. I hated talk. I was frightened of people. It's not a good job to get into if you're frightened of people. And, um, you know, people would want to talk to me and I'd just disappear behind their heads. And, yeah, I, I was not a good hairdresser to come to if you wanted to talk. Very <laughs> <laughs> well, your character, Sita, is also um, in the service industry. She's a cleaner. Mm -hmm. um, can you t tell me about the, the real people that you met who inspired the novel and then how Sita ended up being female? Um, so we've had a few big storms in Wellington recently in which uh, uh, the transport links have been severely affected and there was one a couple of years ago in which um, uh, around early afternoon there was some heavy floods in Petoni and basically knocked out the entire train line from, so if you, know, if you don't know Wellington there's basically two ways out of the city. Um, uh, one along the harbour to Lower Hutt and one up the, up the gorge. Um, and if one gets knocked out, then it's, uh, uh, it's carnage. And what had happened was um, the train lines in Porirua and in the hut were completely affected. And uh, the way our work and most other offices in the, so I work as a lawyer in, in the day, um, dealt with it was to send all the workers home. So you, there was huge gridlock, people were getting out, it took five, six hours to, for people to get to Upper Hutt, which is usually a half an hour drive. Um, and so I was interested in just watching that kind of panic that uh, the people who could afford to leave had. The following day I had to go to work um, and I, w I think it was the weekend and I was talking to um, one of the cleaners there uh, and he said that uh, they didn't have that luxury, they still had to come in. Um, and most of the cleaners were living in um, the areas where the trains um, were out. They were reliant on public transport to get into to Wellington. And uh, he talked about the kind of camaraderie and solidarity that people had to try and help each other, or the cleaners themselves, mm. to, to get to work. Um, but even then, not many actually could make it. Um, and then he received phone complaints um, from the officers for the buildings not being properly cleaned. Um, so that was the starting point for the... Uh, for the book. Um, I also, I grew up in, in Nainai, which is um, one of the more, um, it's seen as a rough neighbourhood, um, but I loved it. It was uh, a really diverse, really um, uh, warm, interesting place. And I kind of wanted to express a kind of solidarity and love for the people that I grew up around, um, because they're not often, their stories aren't often told. Mm. Um, they're, um, they do try to help, they, they're flawed like I anybody else, but they're, um, they're also just trying their best. Um, I grew up with um, state houses and refugees um, who lived directly behind me. Um, my um, neighbour, um, we had a cast of neighbours keep, keep going through because they didn't have security of tenure. Uh, it was um, a really fascinating uh, place to grow up 
And then every time I kept going back to Nine Oaks, my parents are still out there, you would see the changes. Um, the state houses were gone. Um, they weren't replaced, so you kind of wonder, well, all these people living there, where have they, where have they been shipped off to now? Um, so I kind of wanted to capture that in the book. And I, I used Sita because, one, I wanted to write about being Sri Lankan, um, because I never had previously. And two, I um, wanted to kind of talk about the Civil War, because I think there's a trauma amongst Sri Lankans um, which is, I guess, now starting to be expressed in a lot of literature coming out of Sri Lanka. Yes, I forgot to mention that Branavan has a, a, a hobby of, of practicing full-time law as well. <laughs> um, Raj, um, your character as well, this is, this is your first time writing about the experience of being an immigrant. As, am I right? Yeah. And um, in, in New Zealand? Or yeah, in, in New Zealand, rather, yeah. Yeah, in a, I guess in a way that, uh, yeah, sorry, you carry it with you. <laughs> So Abay is, is also an immigrant, but he's a, in, a, in a much more privileged position. He's very, much. very well educated, speaks perfect English, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't have challenges um, fitting into New Zealand society, and I imagine they're similar challenges to, to what you experience. Yeah, very, I mean, to be honest, you're right. I mean, when you put it like that, I was thinking, I was quickly scanning my novels and short stories and barring, barring a, f a few of them, I haven't kind of written about the migrant experience in that sense, uh, in a kind of direct sense. Although I have, there's one story which is set, unfortunately I sold it to the, um, a publisher in India, an online publisher in India, who are, who've been experimenting with this new model of a kind of an iTunes model for short stories. So you kind of pay for one short story um, and at a time and, and you go on their website and you download it. So it's rather than, so it's a kind of seen as a win-win for the author and the reader, where the author doesn't have to wait to put together an entire collection uh, before he, he or she approaches a publisher. And, and meanwhile, you readers can just directly access a short story and download it onto their device. But the, that was a very long-winded way of saying that there is a, a, a migrant story that I'm very, very pleased with. Uh, set in Wellington, but it's unfortunately behind the paywall of two dollars on this <laughs> website. But uh, you know, but so that that is. But one thing I will say is that I guess the reason I don't, I had to think about whether I'd written a migrant story is that. And tell me what you guys feel is that I guess as writers we don't approach stories like that. Like you're trying to tell a story that's urgent to you, mm -hmm. and in a way. In a way, the best stories, or the story that you dream of telling, is a story that is a kind of, is an and-and story. So in this case, with The Man Who Would Not See, I'd be hoping to tell a story about two partners, about parents, about siblings, about the past and the present pulling on you simultaneously. Mm -hmm. and, and the way it often works is that the, at the other end of the business, it's the, the agent and the publisher, who need labels with which to pitch the story. And, mm. and they think of it, can, can we pitch it as a migrant story? Mm. Can we pitch it as an image, you know? So, so I definitely approach the story that moves me most at a given moment to tell. And my hope is the opposite, that it's a story to which so many labels can be attached that labels almost become meaningless mm. or, 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 you know? So to generate that kind of internal complexity. Yeah. So. Pip, you set your book in Auckland, where you used to live, and we used to be a hair, a hair cutter. Um, and it's set during the previous government's 
tenure, and it was a time that was a lot different from when you were living there because uh, suddenly artists, writers, all kinds of artists were being kind of priced out of, of being able to live in the central city. So, yeah, why did you decide to, to set it there and, and how has the city changed since you were there? Gosh. Um, mm, um, I'm really interested in money. Like, I'm quite obsessed with money. Like, I just, I just freaking, I love economics. I love, I just really love money. And I feel like Auckland <laughs> is the money capital. Like, that, that feels, it feels like it's sometimes a different country to the rest of New Zealand. And I think Wellington can be that way as well. But I think there is something that feels very different about Auckland. You know, um, it feels almost like the silicon, I don't know, yeah, it feels different. So when I wanted to write about money and power and stuff like that, Auckland was where I wanted to write about it. And um, yeah, um, so it is a different place. I was thinking about this the other day. Um, there's a session tomorrow about um, music and like, I just remember that that move, you know, like I, uh, you know, I, I used to live with a drummer and a guitar player and me. And first of all, we moved to Ponsonby because Ponsonby was cheap. Then we moved to Grey Lynn because Grey Lynn became cheap. And now my friends are just spread mm. everywhere. And um, I think, but having said that, one of the best things that Auckland has done is put quite a lot of student accommodation right in the centre of Auckland, and it is the most it is the most wonderful feeling. It is so much better than when I was growing up there because you walk up and there is I hate that word diversity, but you know what I mean. Like there's there's diverse experience happening all around you, and there's it just feels a lot more. Yeah, and I think that's one great thing that they have done. But yeah, I mean it's interesting to talk to Dominic. Toei about that, you know, like K Road. Like, I mean, man, we used to live in some shitty places up there, and now it's like roll fancy, roll fancy. Yeah, yeah. It, it's really interesting. K, K Road seems to be really emblematic of, you know, a lot of the stuff you're talking about in this novel because it sort of started out, you know, it was used by ancient Maori as a thoroughfare, then it became a really fancy shopping district, then it was really depressed, it was a red light district, and now it's kind of coming a full circle. Yeah, it's, I, did, I did feel like that. Like, I mean, um, as a kid, there used to be, Rendell's used to be, and it was like the one department store. My mum made all our clothes except our jeans, and we used to go there and buy jeans once a season at Rendell's, and it felt so freaking flash. That's like in the <laughs> 70s. And like, then we lived up there, and yeah, like you say, it was, it was um, yeah, like it was sex work, drugs, and bars, you know, and I think that, and then it changed again, so yeah, it's so on the move. So Pip sort of walked, you walked your, your whole novel around, you went to all the places where your characters go. Did you walk your novel? I did I did yes. you? We yeah. were all walking. Um, so it's, uh, it's a fairly long walk from, from Nainai to Wellington. <laughs> how long, to does it, yeah, how long um, did it take you? I did split it in two, so I walked the hut part, and then uh, another time, um, Murdoch and I, um, who's my publisher, walked from Petoni uh, to Wellington along the, uh, along the uh, highway. But the problem is, in this book, uh, all the trains aren't running. Um, mm. But uh, when we were walking, the trains were running. And it was <laughs> late at night, and so we constantly had to, because um, you have to walk along the tracks for a good, good chunk of it as well. Yeah. Uh, 
Ed, so we were, um, <laughs> we were dodging as we went, but we were also drinking um, beer while we were going. So, uh, <laughs> it was definitely not the experience that um, Cesar was, was having. Um, but uh, it, is, it is quite a long way, and it was in the middle of winter, and it was raining, so we kind of replicated that. And how about all the help that Cesar finds along the way? I mean, there are loads and loads of characters that she meets who help her out in one way or another. Yeah, or they, they try to help, but then they end up un unfortunately kind of taking her back to where she starts, or they, <laughs> they, they can't really help. Um, but a lot of it's based on real-life people that I, uh, that I encountered. So there's one um, character in here who's just recently been released from Rumataka Prison, um, and we had picked up a hitchhiker once who had, the day before, had been released from Rumataka Prison. And if you know where Rumataka Prison is, it's in Upper Hutt. It's uh, quite far removed from anywhere any transport link. And apparently he just got dropped to the, drop, the bottom of the driveway and said, see ya. Um, and he was trying to get back to Tokoroa, um, where, his, um, where his family was, and uh, he, had no way, he had nowhere to sleep. He had, so he, he broke into a digger um, and slept there that night, and then uh, was hitching his way up north, and so we picked him up, and uh, we were going to, to Taupo, and so we, just, we drove him up there. Um, but uh, so that kind of conversation, those sort of... Uh, discussions kind of made its way into the book. Mm. Um, so most of the people in here are kind of based on real-life people. I was interested in the, um, the artist yep. who Cita meets as well. So they stumble into, this woman's having an art show, no one's come to it except for her mum. <laughs> and, um, and Cita finds a homeless woman who wants to go, go and get some, of the, get some of the food action. Um, so they sort of go in there and pretend to look at the art for a few minutes and then eat the food. <laughs> and I wondered about, yeah, why, why, you chose, why you chose that character, because was it simply just to say your problems are really kind of nothing compared to this person who's um, escaped civil war in Sri Lanka and is now trying to bloody get to Wellington from Lower Hutt in the middle of the night in a storm? Um, I mean, there's definitely a, a class aspect to it, but also I, what I really wanted to do was write with compassion to anyone, everyone in the book except probably the boss. Um, mm. of the cleaning company. Um, and, and winds and housing New Zealand don't really come across as... The institutions, yeah. So well either, um, I reckon. But uh, <laughs> in that particular art scene, um, I wanted... I mean, naturally, you'd be disappointed if you have this... You've, you've booked out a, uh, a gallery months in advance. You're hoping that you'll have a big crowd and then, because of the storm, there's no one there. Um, so I wanted to kind of express some sadness for her and for her mum, who's trying her best to kind of tell her to have her chin up. Um, but also kind of the, and in some respects I was critiquing what I saw as a um, refusal of New Zealand art to engage with politics mm. or engage with the everyday. Um, right. I'm deeply fascinated with writing about everyday life and writing about politics and I kind of had the feeling there was quite a conservative aspect to um, a lot of stuff that does get put out, um, particularly uh, literature, um, and excluding the two people uh, sitting next to me, um, but because um, it's hard, because it's a, it's a risky, expensive uh, kind of thing, but I was looking at music is extremely political in New Zealand, mm. and they do an amazing job of um, expressing different viewpoints, and I was kind of trying to draw that in. Plus, also, I'd been to a 21st where uh, I was one of 10 people there, and the person thought I worked in a gallery and just talked to me about <laughs> Colin McCann, <laughs> so I, um, uh, and I had to pretend that I did work in the gallery because there was uh, no reason why I would be at that 21st um, otherwise, uh, so I thought I'd use that conversation <laughs> as well. Um, 
Raj, your characters, you have these two, these half-brothers. There's been an incident that happened many, many years ago which has broken up the entire family. Uh, and the brother, Abe, who is now in Wellington, feels incredible guilt about what happened, even though it wasn't really his fault and he knows that. And I just wanted to talk to you about what the function of guilt is, especially in the novel, because if it's not followed up by any action, which it, which it isn't, it's useless, isn't it? It's no point being guilty and they're not doing anything. Yeah, I agree. I mean, in the book, it leads to, it eventually leads to, but I think, I absolutely agree. I think, I think if there is guilt that is, as you say, followed by inaction or, or inertia, then it's a, it's, a, oh, uh, it's a very useless emotion. But on the other hand, if guilt is a, is a starting point, is a starting point for noticing more, for noticing things you hadn't noticed before, stories you hadn't noticed before, and, and, an expansion, and it leads to an expansion of yourself, then, then it's a, it can be a productive starting point. And I think that, but that very difficult process is what I try to, one of the things I try to dramatize in the novel. And I think, you know, I think when I wrote, it's very interesting, like what Branovan was talking about, about the intersection between politics and everyday life and trying to write about both. And I think in this book, which on the surface, and not just on the surface, deeper uh, below as well, is very much a story, a, a domestic story and a story about family. But what I wanted to be played out within it, that is political with a small p, is, um, is the idea of when you're comfortable, as my main character is, and when the cards of life have largely fallen your way, um, the, how an entire life can be built on not seeing, mm -hmm. on not noticing. So uh, a kind of sin, sin within inverted commas, of omission, so to speak, rather than a sin of commission, rather than having actually wrested anything away from anyone. And how not seeing can become a habit where not only do you after a while, not notice how other lives turned out other ways that have something to do with you, but also you don't notice the, the entire edifice of privilege and fortune that your life stands on. And so, and the reason I say it's political with a small p is that that looking away is not just something we do vis-a-vis -vis certain branches of our family. Mm -hmm. we, can, we do it socially as well and especially it's possible to do in New Zealand, uh, but in, in India, where profound inequalities are much more starkly apparent in every direction you look, there are middle class people, people of my family and people I know well, who would actively recommend it as a navigation strategy through life. Mm -hmm. That you have to wear blinkers to a certain degree and not notice every predicament that is around you in order to function, you know? Because you cannot take on so many stories, you cannot take on so many lives and so many crises. But when it is internalized so deeply that not seeing becomes pretty much the way a middle class uh, person functions, I wanted to dramatize that. Which maybe explains, I guess, why Abe, when he does finally see what his brother is on about, and he yeah. wants to go back to India and and engage with his family and maybe his his sister, who he hasn't Don't seen give in away many too many much years. More. Not going to say anything about <laughs> Don't that give though. Away too. No more. Um, no more. No more. 
Um, <laughs> um, but, when he, but when he does do that, it's sort of at the expense of his immediate family. Right, so this is the, that is, I mean, without giving away plot details, <laughs> I also wanted to, that, you know, when an awakening happens, one of the things I wanted to bring out is that, is that life is this unbelievably ongoing, complex, and, and, and rapid treadmill where suddenly you have an awakening and you notice something you'd never noticed before, but the rest of your life still has its demands on you. And, and that is the scale of the challenge, that life is ongoing and multiple and pulling you in different directions at the same time. So just because you've had a light bulb moment where you've noticed this, doesn't mean all of those other areas of your life or those other people in your life and their legitimate demands on you can be forgotten. The and light bulbs in the other rooms are still up. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, so it's, it's that sense of, you know, like one of the things that fascinates me is not just, is not just uh, masculine incompetence uh, at, at life, but <laughs> that is just a subcategory of general existential incompetence, which we all face to different degrees. So I try to write about, if I have one theme in which sometimes I tell migrant stories and family stories, I think my broader theme is, is with, with sympathy and with empathy and being totally part of it is existential incompetence. And, <laughs> you know, and, and, but still trying, mm. so. Um, these are all such wonderful novels, um, by the way, and these guys are gonna be signing them after this session, and there's also gonna be time later on for some questions, if you guys have some. Um, but when I was thinking about uh, Sita and um, the fact that she and her husband, she's left Sri Lanka later than her husband, so there's this kind of split in the Tamil community between those who have really experienced the fullness of the war and those who haven't. Um, there's also, I think you referred to it before, this really heartbreaking moment where she's picked up by, by a neighbor and she doesn't want to admit that she's a cleaner, so the person takes her all the way back home to her starting point um, with, yeah, no complaint from Sita. Yeah, have you, is that something that you... Yeah, so there's, I, I guess there's two parts in, in terms of a response. One, I came to New Zealand in 1986, so I, I guess I was kind of one of the first wave of Sri Lankan um, immigrants. So I was an immigrant rather than a refugee, um, and there was a kind of middle class uh, who established themselves in New Zealand uh, from the 80s and 90s onwards. And then the worst of the Civil War was immediately in 83 when a lot, a lot of us left, but also it got really bad in 2009. So in the kind of last days of the Civil War, there was a, a huge uh, influx of refugees. Um, so there was a split between the people who left early and the people who had to, to stay late. Uh, but also within my family, um, there was a split. So my dad left early in... Uh, early 1983, and uh, he went to Zimbabwe, but mum stayed behind with, when she was pregnant with me, um, and because her parents were, were sick, um, and so she waited until, until they passed away, but while she was waiting, um, the civil war exploded, um, and there was a, essentially what was, uh, you would use the word pogrom um, type situation which happened in Colombo where we lived, and uh, all the electoral information was passed out to mobs to say where all the Tamils uh, lived, and they went around and killed thousands within um, in a few days. And we only survived because our next-door neighbours were Muslim, um, and they hid us in um, 
uh, in their house, and the patriarch of the family went to the front of the driveway and said, um, no, no Tamils left, they've all, they've all gone. Um, so that was the only reason why we survived. And I, when I was writing this book, I kind of wanted to talk about the refugee crisis and the way people were dehumanized in the discussions of um, what was going on. And um, the reason why the Civil War happened is because initially, uh, Tamils and Sinhalese were dehumanized. They were, they, they were lost through language. The language was used to, um, to take away their humanity. And um, the, I, I could see the same thing happening um, at present, so I, that was one of the reasons why I was writing the book, and also why she was a, a refugee character. It felt, reading it, as if Sita's entire existence is just a process of forgetting what happened to her, yep. forgetting the huge amount of physical pain that she is still in, yep. um, just going through each day. And, and it's hard to forget. My mum's my never talked about um, that, uh, that month. Um, and the only time she mentioned it, I was 10. Um, we were in Sri Lanka, and she introduced me to the neighbors who, who saved my life. And I had no real sense of what it meant, because she hadn't really talked about it. And so I went off pretty quickly and played cricket with my cousin. Um, and I'm kind of heartbroken at how callous I was at the time, but also I didn't know, because mum just never talked about it. Mm. Um, and the kind of relationship in the book between Sita and her son, Satish, is kind of built around that. Um, idea of these traumas, but also this kind of transmitted trauma, which kind of is there for, for the children too, because they know that something happened, but they don't know what. And actually, cricket seems to be the only thing that the characters in the novel seem to know about Sri Lanka. <laughs> she, every person she meets, Sri Lanka, oh, uh, you know, uh, somebody, some cricketer or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were joking last night about uh, talking about cricket stats, so I just um, thought I'd throw in some cricket stats in there. <laughs> Uh, so, Pip, as I said before, your, your novel uh, starts out being... You look so terrified every time I ask you a question. Oh, That's sorry. Really fine. Oh, just, it's fine. It's going to be OK. Um, <laughs> it starts out being about the fashion world, and then, and then it sort of becomes an interrogation of, of that world and, how, and its sort of impact on, on the environment and its wastefulness. Um, I wanted to talk about Elodie as a character. She's such a fascinating character. Um, she is desired by nearly every character in the novel, but nobody really understands her. And really difficult not to spoil this one as well, but um, if you could just talk a bit about the sort of trajectory that she, she goes on. Yes. Um, so I always think of her as like, um, in um, Philip Pullman's um, Dark Materials, his Dark Materials series, um, um, one of the characters can be invisible by not being noticed, like by just being really still and not having any confidence about them. And, just, and I really liked this idea of um, sort of a person who was able, you know, their superpower was the fact that they just disappeared slightly and no one had a handle on them. I was really interested in people like that. Like no one actually could say she likes this or she doesn't like that. And, um, yeah, and I'm also interested, she's the youngest of them all as well, which was important for me um, as well. One thing that I think has missed a lot of people, because I'm a really bad writer, um, she's also, um, she's the Prime Minister's daughter. Like, yeah. I mean, and that, um, that was of interest to me, because I was very interested in Max, um, not Max, I love Max Key, but... Um, <laughs> um, Sophie? Uh, <laughs> Sophie, Sophie yeah. yeah. And... Um, 
Yeah, I'm just, I was just really interested in this idea of a solution to a terrible problem and maybe the solution is gonna come from a strange place and a strange motivation. And I guess also, it's, Elodie is kind of like a love song to um, the people that I meet that are around 20, 21 at the moment. Like I feel like, I feel like we're in a situation where we have kind of completely fucked the planet and now every second article is about how an 18-year-old's found a way to clean the oceans mm -hmm. or an 18-year-old's found a way to, you know, get rid of dirty dairying or something like that. And I just felt this immense pressure that is on that generation and also they seem to be this amazing generation. And I'm, I was interested in interrogating how much of that is me putting my hope on them. You know, like, you, you guys better do something. Um, <laughs> you know, like... Um, and, how much, and also, coming from my generation, we were absolute sifters. Like, I mean, we, my generation, oh, that's not true. The people I hung out with, we did nothing. You know, like, we just, we, we protested, you know, we did all that political action, but realistically, we were always apologizing to the boomers, and, you know, and I just think, I just think that I was really interesting. Often all I'm doing in my writing is trying to work out something I don't understand. And you know, and like the idea that we might be a generation that sees the destruction of our species. I mean that how do I find, you know, like how do I navigate that? And I think she was a way to navigate that in a way that oblivion and journey and metamorphosis and fluidity, yeah, I don't know, but yeah. I'm just remembering the last time we spoke at the Auckland Writers' Festival and the, the crowd was actually mainly boomers and I said mm -hmm. so, something that did not go down well. I'm having a terrible sort of flashback. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I can't remember what it was. Um, yeah. So but, but I do think there's an inter interesting transference. Like, I remember us being so dark on boomers, you know, like, my, you know, my, my generation, and now I see it. It's, you know, it's, we're, I'm as to blame. I am to blame. I shouldn't say generations. I hate, I hate conversations about whole generations. I just think, mm. you know, like, yeah, anyway, sorry. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe a facile question, but I mean, if you are obviously interested in fashion as a former hairdresser, I mean, if you're a stylish person, which clearly you are, how do you sort of, how do you sort of <laughs> reconcile that with the, the, the wastefulness of this, of this industry now? Yeah. I mean, I, I read somewhere the other day that most people buy 20 kilograms worth of clothes a year, you know. Yeah, it's, um, that was the first thing that made me, this was, a, this was another one of those jumping off points for the book was this idea that clothes, we don't, we don't get rid of clothes anymore because they're worn out. We tend to get rid of them because there's more fashion coming in. They become useless because they're not fashionable anymore and I find that a really weird kind of artistic and aesthetic question. That's a really interesting question to me. All I can say is secondhand clothes. Like I know that that's not, I mean, it's not a solution, but I mean, you know, we, we, we have a kid who has had, we bought her a Courtney Barnett t-shirt the other night, and I think that's one of the first articles of first-hand clothing they've ever had. You know, like, there is just, there is enough clothes. I've just said, you know, there are enough dogs and there's enough clothes. You know, like, I just think, you know, rescue a dog. And I mean, that's political too, saying that, because like, 
I'm sort of getting to a point where I'm sizing myself out of second-hand clothes, you know what I mean? And I think that it's a really middle-class kind of, I don't know, like, it's kind of quite a, you know, second-hand clothes. But I mean, you know, this, it isn't always easy for, you know, me to buy second-hand clothes. But I guess, I don't know, like, I really don't know what the answer on it is, except maybe just being awake to it. I don't mm. know. I really don't Speaking know. Speaking of dogs, yes, Doug, Doug the bitch. Oh, lovely oh, Doug. I love, I love Doug too. Yeah. Doug's my favourite character. He's my favourite character too. Um, can you can you tell me about how how you decided to to have Doug be in the novel? He's sort of Carla, sort of oh, her. Sorry, <laughs> Carla um, picks her up ostensibly from the goodness of her own heart and then ends up sort of locking her in her apartment day in and day out until mm. the point where the, the dog's just gone completely nuts and wants to kill her. Mm. Uh, yeah, tell me about that. Um, this, um, that book's um, um, it's dedicated to two dogs. We had two dogs over the time of this. I had the most beautiful dog called Bryn um, who passed away. It was just it was the most horrible thing that I think has ever happened to me. Um, and Bryn was a sick dog. So the dog in here started off as a sick dog. You know, and um, the, what Carla was dealing with was a dog that was dying. But then all of a sudden we got this other dog who is the most terrible dog I've ever met. Um, she is horrific. Like, she is aggressive. She spent the first, like, six years of her life in a garage, and she hates everybody. And um, is also a little bit snuggly. But this idea <laughs> of kind of viciousness, like, I was suddenly scared to be in the house and this idea that we live with these pack animals and then we ask the pack animals to be part of our pack, mm. um, I don't know. And just, I think it was just that animalistic thing, you know, just the idea that we can live with things that if we died would probably eat us, you know, mm. and mm. like, it's a uh, sustainable way to uh, get rid of a dead body. Um, but yeah, so I mean, that's how Doug ended up there. Just, and yeah, I just, yeah, I like dogs. <laughs> Should we do some reading? We'll do some reading, eh? Sure. Yeah, you said sure, so you have to go first. Oh. <laughs> oh. Oh, so, um, so I'm going to read a very small extract where, um, where the younger brother, the one in Wellington, asks his older brother to talk about his idea of God. And uh, the reason, and one of the things I tried to do in the book is a very small preface, which is that Throughout the book, you see the older brother uh, performing what come across as often as uh, quite malicious and manipulative acts. But interspersed with those, throughout the book, I also tried to include many moments where you glimpse other dimensions to him and other sides to him which are, which are very different. And, 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 and my aim on the whole is to kind of, you know, that throughout you kind of find it impossible to make up your mind about him, and he remains kind of enigmatic and elusive, um, even though he does do some very uh, malicious and manipulative things. And this is one such moment. Um, and the other thing I wanted is uh, where, where he reveals another side to himself. And the other thing I wanted to kind of, the reason I picked the extract was perhaps because in revealing, you know, I was thinking about the politics of fiction, and I was thinking about one of the things I've been weirdly thinking about in recent times is, is a kind of very basic definition of justice and what is justice. And, and, and I felt that one, at, a, at a very basic level, you know, justice is a, is a wish or a hope for 
for everyone that their unique story will be seen and heard and acknowledged. You know, and, and that is at the heart of justice, along with all of the other things that happen in a courtroom. But for that, and, and so you get a sense of how his sense of his need for God is linked to his sense of a kind of justice. And uh, so the only two things you need to know is that Abhay calls his older brother Dada, and he calls him uh, Obhi. Dada has his own distinct picture of God which I told him sounded like a vision of universal cloud storage, <laughs> but with a heart. He described it at my prompting because I was curious to know how God sat among his other beliefs, including his sense of potential malice all around. All the things that only you know, but no one else can vouch for, blows you withstood, your efforts to get back up and carry on. God, for me, is the only one who witnessed all that, whom you can turn to for corroboration. Just that omniscience, that is divine justice for me. The sense that at least he knows. In my prayers, that's what I most often find myself seeking reassurance about. God, you know such and such happened, even if no one else does or claims not to. You saw what we went through. Time carries on. Other people forget or deny or saw it differently or simply weren't there. But God is all I have to underwrite what I know I experienced, what I know I endured. And I cannot emphasize, although perhaps you can relate, how important a need that is as a witness to one's struggles and to one's invisible efforts. Because without that sense of a backup, that at least God can confirm your account of what happened and what it felt like, so much of our lives leaves no tracks in the sand, Obi. If no one else cares about or remembers something, did it even take place? And if you can't be sure of your own recollections, then you have no grip on your, own, on your life story that could explain or justify why things have turned out a certain way, why you are where you are. God, to me, is the only one who cares and has the power to be with you through everything. And he needs to be, because this is his role too, so that he can evaluate accurately the account you give of yourself when you return to him, whether you indeed did your best with whatever was thrown at you. And I inwardly applauded the care and clarity of Dada's answer, but made no further remark myself, even though I had more questions. Because as with so much Dada said whenever he was being introspective, I felt he was always, sometimes involuntarily, unawares rather than pointedly, talking about the fallout of what my parents and I had done to him. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.
Yeah, I love, I love this, um, I love this idea of God as a, as an invisible friend, as an imaginary friend, almost. Right. Yeah. Right. Very much. And Ashim is just such a fascinating character. Uh, your, your brothers, at the beginning, you, you think one is a, a victim and the other one is a villain, and then you become terribly confused about that later that on. That is the hope. <laughs> so if that worked, then I'm delighted. That is it the works. hope. So. Uh, <laughs> but Ashim, I mean, there's, there's one part of the book that I wanted to ask you about where he says that he wouldn't invite a Muslim into his house. Yeah. And then later on, they're on a bus, and there's a Muslim woman being hassled yeah. by this idiot guy, and he gets up and, and helps her, he sort of helps her out, rescues her. So, yeah, can you tell me about that? Is this, yeah. That's another lovely incident to pick, and again, without giving the details away, he, what I wanted to again bring out is, is his enigma and his contradictions, and also that in any situation between the brothers, he is the one far more likely to act rather than his brother, who is much more likely to kind of stand back and reflect and contemplate, and by then the moment is over and he's missed, the narrator has missed the opportunity. So he's much more someone who's more directly to act. The other thing, the more optimistic thing that I hope to bring out through an incident like that, which is that he, as he said, the category of Muslims, when he thinks about them, he's like, oh, you know, I can't eat in a Muslim's house and I can work with them, but we mm. can't be closer than that because he sees himself as a Hindu um, in India. Um, but the optimistic belief that I hope to embody in that reaction to that Muslim woman's predicament is that what we think we will do when we consider an abstraction like Muslims is very different from how we often end up behaving when we are confronted with an actual person. Mm. And we respond to that person as human to human. And that is the hope that is embodied in his response to that woman. Mm. That an abstraction is basically a terrible fiction, devoid of detail, devoid of, of contemplation. But thankfully, the way we actually respond with and, and you know, it's, it's not just vis-a-vis -vis Muslims. Abstraction is what allows massive bureaucratic departments in government to enact funding decisions or funding cuts because there's an abstract narrative they've constructed about how these people spend their money and why they are being wasteful. Or, but, but thankfully, when we encounter people or if we can be made to imagine people or if we encounter people, a different part of us emerges, and that's what that incident is trying to bring out. So I'm going to read a scene where she's waiting at Nano train station and she hasn't realised that um, the train's not coming. Um, a lady in her 50s was standing there, checking her watch. She was brushing her hair and she had fresh lipstick on. She looked as if she was dressing for an open casket viewing. She looked relieved to see Sita and walked over to her. You seen anything about a cancelled train? Sita wasn't sure what she meant, so she shook her head. She caught the lady's watch and it said 4.13. There is a 4.21 train, no? Shit, I bloody well hope so. Sita nodded. Shit, I'm gonna, going in for surgery at 5pm today and I've been waiting since 3.30 for a train. The earlier train never showed up, those buggers. Sita nodded, more slowly this time. She wondered if that was why the board wasn't working. She would wait until 4.21 to make sure. She didn't want to step away from the platform, only for the train to arrive at that exact moment. 
It's an absolute bugger if the train's late. You see, I'm going to surgery at 5 p.m. Sita nodded. She felt like the woman didn't need Sita's responses to have a conversation. <laughs> I've got a growth. Sita looked confused. I've got a growth, you see, on my bladder. They don't know if it's cancerous or not, but they've had to put uh, in a whole bunch of stents and bugger me if it doesn't hurt to pee. Sita nodded. She wasn't quite catching what the woman was saying, but realised that she needed to look concerned. And the stent, well, I've been peeing blood for the last few weeks now, and I was meant to have surgery to remove it the other week. But when I showed up, they told me that they couldn't fit me in that day. I'd taken leave and all, and this was the second time they'd cancelled on me. I just started crying. You wouldn't believe it, there in the waiting room. The surgeon who told me that took pity. That's why I'm being operated on after hours, you see. There's just no money. They've got too many people, not enough doctors. And the government doesn't care, and they just want to bring in more refugees. <laughs> Sita didn't follow again, but this time she caught the words. She nodded mostly out of not knowing how to respond. The woman looked like a scrunched up piece of paper. Sita wasn't going to hold statements like that against the woman at this stage. You ever had surgery? Sita nodded. She didn't want to talk about it. Yeah, again, Sita's experience is, is, uh, is, is so much worse than that, and the pain that she is in is, is probably so much worse than that. Um, yeah, I, I didn't want it to be a kind of uh, saying that you, you aren't suffering because someone else has suffered more. Mm. Um, I was definitely trying to steer clear from that um, because everyone has struggles and everyone uh, has difficulty. And I think what I was trying to show in the book is that everyone, um, all these kind of invisible people in our society, have, um, all have it really, really tough and their own struggles are personal to them, but um, it's a struggle nonetheless. Um, and actually that, that conversation is also based on a, a real-life conversation, I must admit. Was yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I just wish that Sita had, had the means, had, the, had a really good friend that she could also unload on in that way, yeah. I guess, when I read that scene. It's the nature of trauma, I think, as well, that sometimes it is really hard to um, know how to express something that's so horrible um, that happened to you. I mean, the, the civil war in Sri Lanka was uh, absolutely horrendous, um, especially in those last days. And I feel like it was a bit of a uh, forgotten war because it was... Um, uh, I mean, 100,000 people died in the last few weeks alone um, in terms of tumbles, and it was civilians and uh, horrendous kind of bloodshed, but it got completely ignored. And so I was trying to kind of give voice to, to someone who, who somehow survived it. Mm -hmm. yep. Oh, yep. Sorry. <laughs> yep, organised. Um... This is um, Elodie, um, she's in Queen Street and it's night, yeah, night time. Um, she walked with purpose now, even though she had no idea where she was going. She told herself she had no idea where she was going, but Elodie knew exactly where she was going. The street was still busy. Wednesday was student night. There were people sleeping in the street because this is how it was now the bright, bright shops keeping the merchandise warm and the people outside them under cardboard and newspaper. Elliday had been to London with her parents 10 years ago and there were people sleeping in the streets there and when she came back, her mother had said, wasn't it great there were no people sleeping on the streets of New Zealand? There were people sleeping in the streets now. Elodie wa wanted to shout, but there was no point. Every time she shouted, she eventually stopped. <coughs> Carla had told her she was thinking about debarking Doug, but it was Elodie who needed debarking. She stopped outside the Louis Vuitton store. There were colourful spheres in the window, like planets orbiting three bags. 
There, was, there were no overstuffed racks in Louis Vuitton like there had been in H&M. They filled the shop with space, with scarcity. Elodie knew they were manufactured next door to where the bags for Topshop were manufactured, like directly adjacent on a neighbouring conveyor belt. She'd been to the factory with Tommy in Indonesia. They'd never tell anyone, but she'd seen it with her own eyes, and Tommy had laughed about it. It was an awful trip. She'd hated him from the minute she saw him, but that was how she, were, she lived her life, wandering like a shell, like an automaton. There was a bright light shining from beside the store, and Elodie realised there were people working inside. They were building a white, white hallway. The light burnt at her eyes like a final bright sun. No one came out. She didn't need to talk to anyone. A gust came up Queen Street, moving Elodie's hair. She turned towards it. She was close to the water. She could smell it. She looked behind herself up Queen Street to the taxi stand, where she could get a taxi home and then sleep and get up, be ready for the photo shoot in the morning. Then she turned back. When she smelt the sea, she could feel everything falling away. She'd been trying to pull it from herself because she wanted to go away so badly, wanted to be the type of person who could go away. She'd pulled away everything that was holding her here, but it fell from her now, almost without any effort on her part at all. She felt an odd ecstasy, a recognition of the brightness and the quiet and the tide. Elodie walked to the gutter and sat in it, feet in the road and the rubbish, paper and leaves and dirt and exhaust. She sat for a moment, slowing her breath. She had a meeting, she had, she'd been at a meeting a few weeks ago where the photographer had asked if the model could lose, say, five kilos, six, 10 would be good. And she had. Bodies changed all the time. Carla was never gonna tell her where she went. Elodie was tired, and she thought of trying to find out from Dewey. Thank you. I'm gonna have to um, ask for questions now um, because we have a few minutes left and it looks like we have a microphone and a person with his hand up at the top there. Thank you, thank you, thank you all. This was fascinating. Um, I've just coincidentally been taking on a tour of the Tony de la Tour exhibition here. I don't know if you've seen it. And my guide was telling me that um, he had said to her that he viewed his paintings as a solution to problems. Mm. And I wonder if any of you see your work as a, your, your individual works and your overall works as, as solutions to problems. Nice question. <laughs> There's a real cliche that art raises questions rather than solving them. And I find that um, because I'm a, um, you know, I, I always want to push against the pricks. I always wonder about that, you know what I mean? And I wonder if, you know, we always think solutions look a certain way, but I feel, especially these two books, I feel like they raise, they are a solution in themselves, if you know what I mean. And I think that, yeah, it might not look like the solutions that we've often thought, and especially Tony's work, but I think in a way they are, if one and one equals two, then that's the sort of solution I think these are in a way, if you know what I mean. That was, that was a weird answer. Can you answer better? <laughs> I was gonna say, I don't think I'd have the, the chutzpah to say that I can uh, offer a solution to, to these kind of big problems, but um, one thing that I was very conscious of in the book is um, 
Fita just listens to people and uh, she hears stories and she hears other voices and to me that is one of the big ways in which people can um, learn more about other people and break down some of these barriers and uh, uh, the segregation between um, various peoples is by listening and that was something I tried to in, uh, build into the, into the book. She's the invisible friend. <laughs> oh. Anybody else? Um, oh, you want to answer that as well? Yes, no, I just sorry. wanted. I, I loved what I think. I think my own my own kind of evolution in response. You know, I've never thought of it in those terms, but just considering, you know, this was this was my sixth book, and I think very early on, with several of the earlier books, I'd have said I'd have said no. That uh, what I would have said is that the effort is to to you know, as I said, I kind of look for, for existential incompetence, and the effort is to present to you, uh, the reader, a, a truthful portrait of fragmentation, of being broken. And that rings true with your own experiences of, of, of trying and failing. And, you know, but, but now, with this book and with other books, I feel like I, feel I have actually moved slightly towards saying, or maybe it's just me having grown a bit, saying, I still, with this book, for example, I still wanted to drag the character, put, it, put them all through the ringer and, and make, them go through, make them go through many different levels of crisis. But I also wanted to then take them somewhere provisional, but somewhere believably hopeful. You know? And I feel like that's been a transition in my, in my own uh, kind of, it's been an evolution of mine that, that I still want for the, but, but for that ending to be believable, the re, I feel the reader has to feel that the crises they have encountered are genuine and they have been genuinely grappled with. And if at the end of that, you've brought them to some temporary platform that they are standing on and looking around and able to, 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 to move and take in more, then, then you, it's a provisional. Um, so I feel, I feel I'm kind of slightly more able to provide that at the end, but not in the early books. The early books were just portraits of, of, of crisis. Um, you, sorry, you were saying last night that your book, your life, You were also saying last night that your book was literally the solution to our problem, wasn't it? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, well, that was, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I mean, I also love what Branavan said, which is the, you know, and it links to the, to the theme of our topic, which is the, the idea of, like, I think, I think one solution that we can all implement, both internally and in looking around, is, is always trying to, because that's what we do anyway, all the time, which is we are creating fictions, you know? The story we are telling ourselves of our movement through life, the story we're telling of why is that person homeless or, or who is that person and, and what are they doing? So if we are always paying attention to how we are narrating those stories to ourselves and, and on the one hand internally trying to tell ourselves more enabling stories and when we look around trying to tell ourselves more inclusive, more imaginative and more attentive stories and that our enabling as with Abha in the book does not stand on ignoring or disabling others, I feel we are moving towards mm. solutions, you know? Uh, better fictions, richer fictions, uh, more enabling fictions that are not at the expense of others, mm. so. Amen. Uh, did someone over here have a question? Yeah. Oh, yes, we've got 
Got a few minutes. A second, yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, I was going to ask Raj and Bran, really. I mean, um, coming to this country and sort of being politically aware of what's happening in this country, but also feeling perhaps, you know, some ties to your country of origin, um, how, do you, how do you cope with that in terms of feeling, I guess, pulled in two ways? You know, do you feel like your priority is to this country's issues or do you still feel that you need, you want to be involved in? I, I, I never felt connected to Sri Lanka. Yeah. Um, I left when I was one. Um, but my first book was about uh, mm. North and West Africa. My second book was about Paris. Mm. Um, so I've already started uh, writing about places that aren't mine. Um, uh, right from the outset, my third book was set in uh, a fictional town in southern Canterbury. Um, <laughs> so I, um, uh, I, but I, I do look inwards, I guess. Oh, I'm starting to a little bit. Um, my my next book's planned to be in Wellington. I do like writing about New Zealand because uh, I feel like I'm a New Zealander, but I'm also kind of slightly removed, so I can I have a different view that that some people might um, than other people might have. Um, which, because I never took anything for granted, all the kind of stuff that's meant to be ordinary and everyday for New Zealanders was never ordinary and everyday for me. Um, so maybe that helped help me as a writer, I think, or maybe helps focus. And I think my answer is very different because I moved here when I was 32. And, uh, and so I, I mean, that's a wonderful question to ask and it's very real for me because, for example, right now I'm working on a series of novels of which I've finished one and submitted to my publisher and I'm working on its sequel, which are very engaged with the political moment in India right now. It's probably my most explicitly political novel. And so, and you know, it's a, we're, we're in a very dark time in India right now, and we're part of a continuum of nations that include what's happening in Israel, what's happening in Turkey. We're, we're in that continuum right now where many things are closing down uh, or are very threatened. So I definitely feel here, uh, feel that although I physically live here, I very much want to be part of that conversation and, and, and that argument, which so many people in India are, are part of. So I, and, and that engages my imagination very much. But at the same time, I have this really interesting response to being Kiwi over the last few years, which, is, which comes out most strongly when I'm either in India or overseas more generally. And, and, and you, know, you keep coming up against this image, and it's actually a very well-intentioned image. And you know, we've done a wonderful job kind of presenting that image to the world. If we're doing something. Like, you know, for a lot of people, and this too has political implications, for a lot of people, New Zealand is this kind of faraway utopia that not only do they want to believe in, they need to believe in. You know, they kind of need to believe that there's this one southern Scandinavia where <laughs> things are really great, and one day I could move there. If I get really sick of, of Brexit and whatever, I could move there. And very often I see my role uh, when, when, when these conversations come up, of, of actually making that picture more complex, and of actually kind of pointing out all the ways in which several of the, you know, so many themes that the world is grappling with, inequality, Aboriginal rights, you, you are utterly part of the central parts of the conversation here as well. And just this morning, in a different context, the one thing I could say about which, which makes New Zealand different um, is that, that sometimes those, those arguments in other parts of the world in recent years have spilt over into violence. And so far, we've had 
we have those struggles and those, those debates so far without the explosive violence. Uh, but, the re but the reason I said that even this view of us, this sanitized view of us as being this southern utopia is political is because I think that has a very direct link, don't you, to us being seen as a, for example, as a billionaire bolt hole, you know? And so even that's political. Our sanitization leads to homelessness in the Wanaka Lakes and in Queenstown because, so it's really, so everything is political, even Disneyfication can be political, like it's really interesting. I am hating to wrap it up right now, but we will have to um, please uh, buy these books and get them signed. They're really, really wonderful. Thank you very oh, thank much you so for George much, Julie. Chuck Thanks, Julie. Julie. Lingham and Adam, and thank you so thank much you. for coming. Thank you so much. Thank you, Julie. Thank you so much.